Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please make sure the volume of this podcast is set perfectly to your listening enjoyment. Please take your seat, whether that's on the treadmill, car, sofa, or bed, and buckle in for the last trip. My name is Jamie Beebe, and I'll be your tour guide recreating someone's last days in paradise. On behalf of myself and everyone behind the scenes, please enjoy the Last Trip Podcast. And because nobody likes a long flight to get to where they want to be, let's prepare for takeoff. Our victim today is 22-year-old Jesse Galganov, who traveled from Montreal, Canada to the Santa Cruz Mountains in Juarez, Peru in September of 2017. Jesse was taking a gap year before medical school to embark on an eight-month dream trip backpacking through South America and Asia with his first stop in Peru. He landed in Lima on September 24, 2017. On September 28, Jesse messaged his mom that he would be going on a 31-mile, four-day trek through the Santa Cruz Trail and would be unreachable until October 2nd. But that's not what happened, because no one ever heard from Jesse again. Before looking into this case, I thought Jesse got lost on the trail, maybe fell to his death, or succumbed to the elements. But this case has way too many twists and turns for it to be that simple. Surprisingly, I haven't been to Peru, but I will be going in 2024 and can't wait. The history of Peru is fascinating. The story begins thousands of years ago, even before the pyramids of Egypt. The Norte Chico civilization emerged around 3500 BC, more than 5,000 years ago. They're one of the earliest known societies in the Americas to develop complex cities and settlements. They had large organized settlements with buildings and plazas, public spaces, streets, a building plan for the cities, and irrigation systems for crops. We don't know exactly what happened to the Norte Chico civilization, but it could have been environmental factors, social or political changes. But they didn't disappear completely, because they influenced all the civilizations after with their urban planning ideas. The most famous civilization was the Inca Empire, which was founded around 1438. These people were highly organized, had a central government, extensive road networks, and they built Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu is an ancient city high up in the Andes Mountains of Peru that dates back to the 15th century. It remained hidden from the outside world for centuries until an explorer named Hiram Bingham discovered it in 1911. And it's absolutely gorgeous. There's terraced fields covered into the mountainside, majestic stone buildings, and intricate pathways that wind through the site. Machu Picchu is divided into different sections of residential areas, temples, and agricultural terraces. When they built it, they used massive stone blocks perfectly fitted together without the use of mortar. How they possibly managed to move and shape these huge stones remains a mystery to this day. The determination and engineering required to construct Machu Picchu high in the Andes is mind-blowing. Not only did they build this entire city on top of a mountain, but one of the most iconic parts is the Intuatana stone, which is believed to have been an astronomical and religious marker. It's thought they used this stone to observe the movements of the sun and the stars. Today, Machu Picchu is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and one of the seven wonders of the world. If you get the opportunity to go to Peru, you have to visit Machu Picchu. In 1532, Spanish conquistador Francisco Pizarro arrived and captured the Inca ruler, which led to the downfall of the empire. So from 1532 to 1824, Peru was ruled by the Spanish conquistadors. 
The indigenous people were forced into labor, had cultural suppression, and many died from diseases brought by the Europeans. Then in 1824, Peru gained independence after the Battle of Ayacucho, but there was political instability, regional conflicts, and territorial disputes after that. In the 1980s and 90s, Peru had a lot of internal conflict with a group called the Shining Path, a Maoist guerrilla organization. They caused widespread violence, human rights abuses, and economic disruption. This was a really difficult time period for Peru. In the 1990s, President Alberto Fujimori started to stabilize the economy, attract foreign investment, and promote free market policies, which helped modernize Peru and spurred economic growth. This is when tourism started gaining popularity in Peru and travelers started arriving. The government knew tourism would really help the economy, so a lot of efforts were made to promote the country as a safe and welcoming destination. In the early 2000s, there was a huge tourism boom in Peru, and it's continued since then. It's had a positive impact on the country's economy and employment opportunities, but it also brought environmental issues. There are a lot of amazing things to do in Peru. If you're going and plan to visit Machu Picchu, you have to purchase a ticket in advance because they don't sell them at the entrance. Also, you need to get your tickets at least a week in advance because they only allow so many people in at a time and it will sell out last minute. It's not recommended to make your way solo through Machu Picchu. Instead, go with a tour or get a guide. Beyond Machu Picchu, Peru has so much to offer. Cusco is the former capital of the Inca Empire and it's considered a gateway to Machu Picchu. So you'll likely spend a day or two there if that's where you're headed. While you're there, check out the Cusco Cathedral, also known as the Cathedral Basilica of the Assumption of the Virgin. Construction began on the cathedral in 1559 and was completed in 1654. The whole structure is an amazing work of art, and once inside, you'll definitely want to check out the artwork. Specifically, the guinea pig Last Supper painting. It was painted in 1753 by Marcos Zapata. It's like the original Last Supper painting, except the twist is that instead of bread and wine on the table, they're eating guinea pigs. A guinea pig dinner is a Peruvian delicacy and still served today, but definitely not something I'm going to dine on when I visit. The Sacred Valley is located near Cusco, and it's a must-see with charming villages, salt mines, and unbelievable natural beauty. Lima is the capital of Peru with a rich history, but also a more modern Peruvian culture. If you're in Lima, there's some really cool things to explore. In the Museum of Anthropology is the room of 10,000 ancient skulls. Guys, it's literally a room full of ancient skulls, possibly the largest collection in the world. The skulls have a stretched, elongated shape, and archaeologists think it's from tying cloth or wood around the head to show their elite status. But there's a debate over whether the shape stems from cultural, genetic, or even alien origin. Unfortunately, the actual room is off-limits to the public, but they have eight skulls on exhibit that you can check out. If the paranormal is your thing, be sure to stay at the Grand Hotel Boulevard. It was opened in 1924 and was the hotel of choice for politicians, Hollywood stars, and rock and roll legends. In fact, the Rolling Stones were once thrown out for bad behavior. The fifth and sixth floors have been closed off for more than a decade. The hotel says it's from lack of funds, but people who've stayed there say it's because of the ghosts. There's a woman wearing all white who walks the corridors, the ghost of a deceased former employee, and the ghost of a woman who threw herself out of a hotel window. It's a must-see if you're into the paranormal. 
Balcony rooms start at about $80 a night, and the historic presidential suite is a little over $200 a night. Stay there if you dare. Lake Titicaca, which is super fun to say, is on the border of Peru and Bolivia. It's the world's highest navigable lake and South America's largest lake. The indigenous communities considered the lake sacred and built the Euros Islands on it. These are artificial floating islands made from layers of totora reeds. Located in the Nazca Desert are the Nazca Lines, which are enormous geoglyphs etched into the desert floor. Ancient figures of animals, plants, and geometric shapes that are best viewed from the air. Although it's a mystery what they're for or even how they were created. I could talk about Peru all day, but it's time to dive into our case and get to know our victim, Jesse Galganov. Hey guys, I hope you're all enjoying the Last Trip podcast. I'm excited to tell you about my bikini company, The Boyfriend Bikini. Now, I love traveling, especially to warm tropical beaches, and I found myself always searching for the perfect travel bikini. Something sexy, great for any occasion, and easy to stuff in my bag when I'm on the go. So I took all the best bikini ideas, worked with a fashion designer in Paris and a manufacturer in Bali to create my new swimwear company, The Boyfriend Bikini. You know that saying about how girls level up after a relationship ends? They travel more, get hotter, and start a new business? Well, that's exactly what I did. The Boyfriend Bikini is about taking control of your happiness, personal growth, and being a total girl boss. I've named each bikini after a type of man I know, good and bad, because each one helped me grow into who I am today. When you order your favorite Boyfriend Bikini, you'll get the story behind the man that inspired that bikini. And because you listened to the last trip, I'm giving you 10% off your order by using code TRAVEL. Also, a portion of all sales will go to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Just go to theboyfriendbikini.com and use code TRAVEL to get 10% off your order. That's theboyfriendbikini.com, code TRAVEL to get 10% off your order. Happy traveling! Jesse was originally from Montreal, Quebec in Canada, where he grew up with his parents, Todd and Alyssa, and his sister, Sammy. Jesse was a smart kid. He was positive, happy, and captain of the football team in high school. He was injured in a game when he was 17 and suffered an intense concussion, leaving him with post-concussive disorder. Because of that, he couldn't read, study, or apply to colleges as he had planned, so he got involved in helping others. He started raising money for the Movember Foundation, which is when guys grow out their mustaches during the month of November to raise awareness for men's health issues. Jesse's focus was prostate cancer. He was bummed about not being able to go to college right away, so he used his recovery time to help others. It really made an impact on him because he continued to work with the foundation throughout his life. He eventually moved to the U.S. in 2017 and went to college. He graduated from Wesleyan University in Connecticut with a bachelor's degree in mathematics. After graduation, he was accepted into medical school at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia with plans to work with Doctors Without Borders. Jesse had a huge heart. He was empathetic, loved learning about other cultures, and seeing new places. So before med school, he planned a gap year to take an eight-month dream trip backpacking through South America and Asia. He was an experienced traveler and had previously spent a semester in Prague and an additional seven weeks backpacking through Western Europe. Before his trip, he moved home with his mom, and while he was there, he planned out every single detail. 
He mapped out the exact routes he was going to take, what campgrounds and hostels he would stay in. He was prepared for any situation that came up, and he also planned to meet up with old friends along the way. Jesse was looking for self-discovery, a chance to learn about other cultures and experience things outside his comfort zone. In researching this episode, I found a YouTube video put out by Jesse's family called Let's Talk About Jesse. It's about an hour and a half long, with about 60 of Jesse's friends and families sharing stories about him. It's a heart-wrenching but loving video, and if you want to know more about Jesse, I suggest watching it. But if you watch it, get the Kleenex ready. I teared up through the entire video. So many people miss and love Jesse, and although I never met him, I really felt like I got to know him. When people talk about someone they've lost, they always say that person lived life to the fullest, and Jesse really did. He woke up each day and made something good happen. Everyone loved Jesse. He brought people together and led them on crazy adventures. He was unrelenting in his beliefs and could tap a keg better than most of his friends. I found an extremely detailed timeline leading up to when Jesse was last heard from. The timeline was formed from his friends and family who had access to his iCloud account, Google accounts, Snapchats he sent, and the geolocation data from his photos. The night before Jesse left Montreal, he was packing and repacking his bags, making sure everything was in order. He would be gone from September 24th, 2017 to May 15th, 2018, with his first stop in Peru, touring South America first and then going to Asia in early January. Jesse's mother dropped him off at the airport on September 24th, 2017, and that same day he landed in Lima, Peru. He stayed in Lima for a couple of days, then hopped on an overnight bus on September 26 to Juarez, which is about a seven-hour drive from Lima. He arrived there a little after 6 a.m. on the 27th. From there, we can jump into our detailed timeline of events. At 6.13 a.m., Jesse googled directions to Came House on his phone, and at 6.15 a.m., he googled directions to Came House Hostel, which is where he was going to stay that night. At 6.18 a.m., he googled directions to Junior Carlos Valenzuela Guardia 1095 Juarez, Peru, which was the address of the hostel. He dropped a pin in his map at 6.24 a.m. and started walking to the hostel from the bus stop. At 6.25, standing a block south of the bus station, he sent a Snapchat to his friend, which was also confirmed with Google Street View. He checked into the Came House hostel at about 6.30 a.m., and that was captured by security footage. At 6.33, it was confirmed from Google Street View that he sent another Snapchat to a friend standing just outside Came House. At 6.36, Jesse googled supermarket from his phone and then searched Mercado Central de Juarez, which is Spanish for the Central Market of Juarez. At 6.40 a.m., Jesse was back inside Came House and sent a text checking in with a friend. A few minutes later, he forwarded his check-in email from Came House to his mom. Jesse was constantly checking in and letting people know where he was and what he was doing. At 6.49 a.m., he sent out another Snapchat to his friend Antonio Rabio. It's a picture of a dog on wooden steps with a white edging. The text from the snap said, Unknowingly broke into a hostel and let this guy loose. I think he's mine now. It was confirmed to be Chris Garcia's dog, the owner of Came House, and the photo was taken from the front steps of the hostel. Jesse spent the rest of the day in town gathering extra supplies and then spent the night of September 27th at the hostel. The next morning, CCTV shows Jesse leaving Came House at 4.30 a.m. and walking toward an area where people gathered for transportation. 
It's unknown who gave Jesse a ride, but he was dropped off at the Casa Pampa entrance to Ascaran National Park. That morning, he sent a text to his mom that he was going on a four-day trek and would be unreachable until October 2nd. He was headed on a 50-kilometer or 31-mile hike through the Santa Cruz Trail, a trail he had always dreamed of hiking. The hike normally takes three to four days, so nothing was out of the ordinary with the text he sent to his mom. It's 15,617 feet at the highest elevation, which is the Punta Union Pass. Hikers at Casha Pampa entrance can either hike from east to west or west to east, and Jesse opted for west to east. He planned to do the hike in four days because he had already purchased a ticket to take the bus back to Juarez at the end of the trek. It's a moderate to difficult hike and can be done independently or with a guide, and Jesse was doing this one solo. If you use a trekking company, the cost is about $150 to $300 for the four days. And if you're going solo, you're just required to pay 65 Peruvian souls, which is about 20 American dollars to the park. You can pay at the trailhead prior to your hike, and you'll also need a copy of your passport to check in at the trailhead. It is recommended to use a trekking company, especially when you take into account the gear, transportation, and the low cost. If you're not into group hikes, you can sign up for a smaller group or just hire a guide and donkey driver to help out along the way. An experienced backpacker can do the journey without a guide, but again, it's not recommended. The elevation on this hike is extremely high, and Jesse was only in Juarez overnight, which didn't give him much time to adjust to the elevation. Guides recommend staying in Juarez for two nights to properly acclimate. Not adjusting to elevation can cause elevation or altitude sickness. And symptoms include headache, nausea, and in severe cases, altitude sickness can be life-threatening. There are water sources along the trail, but you have to either boil or treat the water to make sure it's safe to drink. Staying hydrated is essential, especially with the higher elevation. When October 2nd rolled around, there was no word from Jesse. But his mom didn't panic right away. She figured he took an extra day or two to finish the hike, which is more common with solo hikers. On October 7th, when Jesse's mom still hadn't heard from him, she started reaching out to his friends to see if anyone else heard from him. Jesse had been keeping in contact with lots of friends, posting on social media, and sending Snapchats, but there was no contact after September 28th. Later that day, Jesse's mom saw that he purchased an app from the Apple account that the family shared, so it eased her worries to know that he was somewhere with a Wi-Fi signal. Unfortunately, it was later discovered the charge went through on the 7th, but he bought the app on September 28th. The charge on the account was delayed due to a technical issue. None of his friends or family wanted to freak out and overreact in case he got caught up with his hike or was busy. But after a week passed and still no one heard from Jesse, they knew something was horribly wrong. Jesse meticulously scheduled each day of his trip and didn't have anything extra in his budget to deviate from those plans. Jesse's mom filed a missing person report on October 14th with the United States Embassy, Canadian Embassy, and Peruvian Embassy because he was a dual U.S. and Canadian citizen in Peru. She also reported his disappearance to her local police station in Canada and to the FBI. On October 17th, just three days later, his mom Alyssa was on the ground in Juarez desperately searching for her son, who was now missing for three weeks. She set up a GoFundMe account, which quickly hit well over 200000 Canadian dollars to help with the search. The same day she reported Jesse missing, Alyssa hired a private search and rescue firm. The firm sent a subcontractor from Mexico City to help her search for Jesse when she first arrived in Peru. 
She had to do this because authorities in Peru really didn't have the resources to search for Jesse. So most things were left to Alyssa to figure out. On October 19th, Jesse's family started the Help Us Find Jesse Facebook page, which gave an in-depth look at how the search for him played out. His family and friends immediately jumped into action, getting the word out. On October 21st, they posted a $10,000 reward for information leading to the location of Jesse. At a news conference the next day, Jesse's mom said she feared he may have been abducted. She said all of the information she was getting was leading to that conclusion. She went on to say, it is really the only plausible theory at this point because nobody really disappears into thin air. On November 8th, Alyssa hired an elite Israeli search and rescue team called Magnus. Israel is one of the few countries allowed to help search for people internationally. They conducted interviews, searched the trails, used underwater robots, drones, land searches, helicopters, search dogs, and combed through any photos taken on the trail during those days. At first, they found absolutely nothing. They couldn't even confirm he had made it to the trail. And that's really when the mystery begins and things don't add up. mentioned earlier in the episode that everyone has to bring their passports, pay a fee, and sign in to use the trail, but there was no record of Jesse ever entering the park. The park employees weren't cooperating with authorities when they were asked to hand over any check-in documents from the day Jesse entered the park, and it was later found out that the people working at the park that day were not actual employees at the park, and the sign-in documents the park eventually provided were incomplete and forged. The original sign-in sheets were either not there that day, they had been accidentally destroyed or lost, or were purposefully destroyed or hidden. So when the authorities asked for the sign-in sheet that day, the people from the park took the sheet from the same day in August and changed the date to September. While it could just be that someone wasn't doing their job and didn't want to get caught, it could also be that they knew more than they let on. Authorities and private investigators were busy contacting people that work on the trails and live in the mountains, including mule drivers and guides. But many didn't want to come forward and were unwilling to cooperate. One reason is because they're a small, poor, tight-knit community of people, and they thought if anyone was found dead on the trails, they could be blamed for it and didn't want the attention. It's also a common practice for mule guides on the trail to put bodies they find into a body of water in the area although all the bodies of water were searched. The Israeli team Magnus used technology to search throughout social media to find photos posted from the area while Jesse would have been there and started reaching out to everyone to see if they remembered seeing Jesse. By doing this, they found two witnesses who could place Jesse on the trail. There were two men from France who camped next to Jesse at the same base camp on September 30th. They said he seemed dehydrated, disoriented, and told them he felt sick. He was suffering from headaches and diarrhea. The Frenchmen figured Jesse was suffering from altitude sickness, and those are all common symptoms. The following morning, October 1st, when Jesse woke up, he told them he was feeling better, and they said he seemed to be fine, so they weren't concerned when Jesse continued with his hike. Since they were headed in the opposite direction that day, it was the last time they saw him. A group of Czech backpackers tracked down by Magnus also remembered seeing Jesse on October 1st at 3.30 p.m. He was looking sick and walking really slow, sitting on the side of the trail about one kilometer down from Punta Union, which is the highest point on the trek, and he was struggling to even stand up. Jesse asked the group where he could get water. 
It's obvious that Jesse was in trouble, so I don't understand why the backpackers didn't help him. If I saw someone in distress and alone on a mountain, I wouldn't just leave him there and continue on my way. But that's exactly what those backpackers did. And it's the last time we know for sure that anyone ever saw Jesse. On November 18th, Alyssa updated people following the case, saying it's possible Jesse was abducted and it could take up to a year for kidnappers to ask for ransom. She said they were still searching inside caves and other hidden areas in case Jesse found shelter. On November 30th, Alyssa joined Global News with Laura Casella to talk about the extensive search for her son. She said she'd never stop searching for him and would do anything to bring him home. It had already been two months since Jesse went missing. I think Alyssa was coming to terms with the fact that he may not be found alive, but either way, she wanted to bring him home. Alyssa was back in Peru with Magnus in January of 2018 to continue the search. And while Jesse's mother had been the face of this search, his father, Todd Galganov, had been searching behind the scenes. He spent nine and a half months living in Peru looking for Jesse before returning home in October of 2018. In those first few months, Todd went door-to-door with policemen and he hiked the mountains every day. He talked to every single person he saw and posted missing person flyers throughout the area. He also set up a website called jessieprotected.com where he posted heartfelt videos detailing his search. He's also been developing a safety and awareness kit to help keep other people safe. He says he thinks Jesse is alive because they haven't found his body. He hiked the same trail Jesse did and doesn't see where he could have fallen or had an accident. So he thinks Jesse was abducted. He asks for a minute of silence every year on October 1st at 3.30 p.m., which he named Jesse Galganov Day, because that was the last time Jesse was seen. Todd's motto is, no body, no death. The beginning of 2018 came and went without any new leads. They released a news statement on his 23rd birthday, February 8th, saying they believe he's alive because they still haven't found his body. They asked for anyone in the area during that time to come forward in case they have any information that could help. On May 16th, a day after Jesse was supposed to come home, his mom finished her hike on the same trail Jesse disappeared from. After doing the hike herself, Alyssa believes Jesse died due to altitude sickness. She said the trail was difficult, poorly marked, and she could not have successfully navigated it without a guide. Since then, her search turned into a recovery mission because she wants her son's body home with her. In August of 2018, Alyssa hiked up the mountain again with a canine team trained in finding human remains, but still found nothing. At the one-year mark of Jesse's disappearance, she told the Montreal Gazette she no longer believes Jesse is alive. Her life now has a single focus, to find him and bring him home. But she does still pay Jesse's cell phone bill, just in case. Jesse's father, Todd, believes human traffickers took Jesse and are using him for forced labor. He raised the reward money to 500000 U.S. dollars and hopes to pay the traffickers what his son is worth to them. What happened to Jesse Galganov? My initial thought was that he got lost or had an accident on the trail. I figured he would have been found hungry and dehydrated by other backpackers or his body would have been found along the trail. But there's a lot of mystery surrounding Jesse's disappearance, including a possible cover-up by the hostel or police or park rangers, and a lot of people caught in lies when questioned about Jesse's whereabouts. 
Someone I don't think was looked into enough was the owner of Came House Hostel, Chris Garcia. We absolutely know that Jesse stayed there the night before he disappeared because there is video evidence. But when questioned by authorities, the owner said he was never there. I can't see any reason why he would lie unless he knew something about Jesse's disappearance. I stay at hostels when I travel, and this is probably one I would have stayed at. Hostel World website describes Came House as a backpacker hostel where you feel like home and you'll experience a lot of freedom and fun. Facilities are simple but functional, taking care of all the details that can make the difference in order to bring our guests and travelers the best possible service and experience. In a nutshell, your stay with us will feel like a break in your trip. Our location with no doubt is magnificent because we are close to some of the finest landmarks and attractions in the city of Juarez. We offer diverse accommodation options oriented to diverse kinds of guests and travelers. In this sense, we offer dorms for four people who are seeking an adventure abroad, as well as more private accommodation, in particular for couples who are looking forward to more tranquility and relaxing environments. In addition, we have several amenities and common areas in which the guests and travelers can relax and speak about past experiences and future plans. The reviews for this hostel are great with an overall 9.3 out of 10 and interestingly enough, the highest reviews are for security. Some of the hundreds of reviews include great staff, great hiking advice, not a party hostel, close to the main square and supermarkets, the owner was so nice, great view of the white mountain range, noiseless, the roof terrace was great. One thing that sticks out is so many of their reviews mention the owner, Chris Garcia, being a great person, a great guide, and very knowledgeable. Nothing about Jesse was mentioned on the website or in any of the reviews. So I'm guessing no one knows the owner was part of a missing persons investigation and lied about Jesse checking into the hostel. There were a lot of comments on the Find Jesse Facebook page. People were saying they saw him in Makashka Village, Bolivia, La Paz, and the Peruvian jungle. Saying he was sick, drugged and robbed, his organs were trafficked, he was murdered, he lost his memory and was wandering through the city, he was kidnapped by human traffickers, and even that he was never actually in Peru at all. There were hundreds of theories being thrown out on the Facebook page, but none had any merit. I doubt Jesse is still alive, but there's a chance he could have gotten lost and found shelter with some of the shepherds that live in the mountains. They have no real connection to the outside world, and if he was injured, he may not have been able to explain who he was. He also could have ended up in one of the many retreat centers that are deep in the secluded area of the mountains, but I think if that was the case, he would have been found by now. Jesse's mom thinks he's likely dead, and I agree. But the question is, how? What really happened? Alyssa thinks he died from altitude sickness, especially since the other hikers saw him sick and disoriented on the trail. But if that's how he died, what happened to his body? And how have we not found any trace of him after years of extensive searching? Someone could have come along either right before or after he died and robbed him. Then to cover it up, they either carried his body out or hid it somewhere in the mountains. He could have fallen off the trail into a body of water or wandered off the trail and we haven't found him yet. It's possible Jesse was convinced to change his route by someone he befriended along the way and wound up on any number of the other trails, which they're still checking. Remember, this is a huge amount of land with potentially treacherous terrain. If he's on another trail or off the trail, they may never find his body. There's a chance that in Jesse's weakened state, he was attacked by an animal. There are jaguars, black caiman, and green anacondas, which could possibly dispose of a whole body, but it would be extremely rare. One of the world's most deadly animals, the poison dart frog, resides in Peru. 
It can kill any animal, including humans, in less than three minutes, and there's no anecdote. But if Jesse was killed by a poison dart frog, it wouldn't explain why his body and belongings were never found. If Jesse died from some type of accident along the trail, his body would have been found unless there was human intervention. Someone could have hid or buried his body to cover up foul play. Or maybe his body was never found because the muleteers and donkey drivers often take and dispose of bodies they find along the trail in nearby water. I couldn't find an adequate reason for why they do this, but it's definitely something they regularly do. The private investigation company, Magnus, believes Jesse was a victim of the elements, and someone came across his body and moved it. Otherwise, they would have found him by now. I have to say, in researching this case, I shed a lot of tears. Jesse was fiercely loved by his family and friends, and they worked so hard to find him. I truly hope his family can find something out there soon to get their much-needed closure. How can you stay safe in Peru? The threat of violent crime in Peru is no greater than in most of the world's major cities. Traveling around Peru is relatively safe. The Shining Path Maoist rebel group has been largely disbanded and most civil unrest is dying down. When you're there, dress casually in Peru and if it's a question, go with something more conservative. If you're visiting churches, cathedrals, or religious sites, avoid shorts, short skirts, and sleeveless tops. I always carry a scarf with me when I travel so I can cover my shoulders if I need to. In Peru, modesty is appreciated even at the beaches and pool areas. Make sure you always have a photocopy of your passport, travel documents, bank cards, and driver's license. And you can actually register your passport at the embassy in Lima. It doesn't take long and it can come in handy if your documents are lost or stolen. Don't carry more cash than you need for the day and keep it close to your body. Keep your camera and phone packed away or on a strap around your body. Don't hang your bag or purse on the back of your chair at restaurants and don't leave anything sitting on the tabletop because that's an easy snatch and grab. Distraction techniques are popular in Peru for petty crimes and robberies. That's when someone sprays sauce or paint on you, falls in front of you, or drops something at your feet. Then when you're distracted, thieves use a razor to cut your bags open, swoop in, grab any loose luggage, or simply snatch and run. Don't sleep on buses if you can help it. If you're on an overnight bus and you are going to sleep, make sure you keep your bags shut and tied to somehow. Get creative with it if you need to because it's better to be safe than sorry. I would personally avoid overnight buses in the northern part of the country because although extremely rare, they may be stopped and robbed. As long as you give criminals what they want, civilians are usually not hurt. Some travelers have been robbed by bogus taxi drivers, so don't hail a taxi on the street. Ask your hotel or hostel to book one for you, and the same goes for taking a taxi from the airport or bus terminals. Credit card fraud is widespread in Peru. Keep your card in sight if you need to use it. If someone is taking a while to use it, even while your eyes are on it, it's possible they are skimming your numbers, so always look for suspicious transactions in your account. ATM crime is common. Avoid withdrawing money at night or in a bad part of town. Kidnappings throughout South America are becoming more common, especially express kidnappings where travelers are held against their will and taken to various ATMs to get cash. In most cases, the victim is released quickly when the account limit is reached, so keep your limit low. Never fight back if this happens to you. Everything can be replaced except your life. These kidnappings are rarely violent if you do what they say. Certain areas of Peru are more dangerous than others. 
The ruins that overlook Cusco are notorious for muggings, especially during sunset and sunrise. Make sure you go with a group to avoid problems. Strangle muggings are common, and that's when criminals put you in a chokehold and steal everything while you're unconscious. If you're going into the Amazon, go with a cruise company or boat tour operator that has armed police on board 24-7, and most do because that's common. For women traveling alone, it's generally safe. You will get some unwanted attention, and it's not a bad idea to wear a modest, plain wedding ring to appear married and never tell anyone you are single or traveling alone. Avoid isolated areas, don't get into cabs alone, don't hitchhike, and never go hiking alone. Groping and sexual assault can happen on buses. Let the driver or ticket seller know, and don't be afraid to cause a loud scene if this happens to you. When drinking anything, alcohol or not, be very aware of anyone near you because drink spiking is popular. Hallucinogenic plants or other drugs are often used to spike drinks. There are constant reports and rumors about traveling through Peru due to rebels and problems with the government. Recently, the U.S. issued a Level 2 travel advisory in Peru, meaning exercise increased caution due to crime and civil unrest. To me, that's definitely safe enough to travel there solo. Some areas of Peru are at level four, meaning do not travel. That includes the Colombian-Peruvian border area in the Laredo region, the valley of the Apiramac, Ini, and Mantaro rivers, including areas within the departments of Ayacucho, Cusco, Huancavelica, and Yunin due to crime and terrorism. And I probably said most of those cities wrong. The Puno region, including the Peruvian side of Lake Titicaca and the Apiramac region, also level four due to civil unrest. The U.S. Travel Advisory website goes on to say that crime, including petty theft, carjackings, muggings, assaults, and other violent crime is common in Peru and can occur during daylight hours despite the presence of many witnesses. Organized criminal groups have been known to use roadblocks to rob victims in areas outside of Lima. Demonstrations and protests occur regularly throughout the country for a variety of reasons and can cause shutdown of roads, trains, and major highways without prior notice. If you're planning to participate in ayahuasca and cambo ceremonies, be aware that numerous people have reported while under the influence they have witnessed or been victims of sexual assault, rape, theft, health problems, injuries, and even death. So guys, would I travel to Peru right now? Simple answer is yes, of course. There is crime everywhere, and I'm confident in my experience to be able to stay safe or get out of a sketchy situation alive. But I would not travel to any level 4 areas at this moment, although things change all the time, so I'm sure it'll be safe soon enough. Of course, always inform someone about your plans before going anywhere. Tell someone reliable where you're going, what you'll be doing, and when to expect you back. And my number one tip to staying alive on vacation is to pay attention to your gut. If something doesn't feel right, it isn't. Jesse was last seen on October 1st at 3.30 p.m. in the Santa Cruz Mountains in Juarez, Peru. Neither his body nor any of his belongings have ever been found after years of extensive searching. Jesse was 22 years old when he went missing. He's 5'10 and approximately 170 pounds with wavy brown hair and brown eyes. He was wearing dark clothing when he went missing. If anyone has any information at all about Jesse's whereabouts, please email helpusfindjesse at gmail.com or reach out on Instagram at helpusfindjesse. And finally, remember to leave a review and rate this podcast five stars if you like the show or hell, even if you don't. But either way, feel free to let me know what you think. 
Please follow The Last Trip on Instagram at The Last Trip Crime Pod and subscribe to Patreon to support the show. You'll get extra research, videos, photos, and updates, and even learn about my personal travels. That's patreon.com slash The Last Trip Podcast. I'm Jamie Beebe, bringing you your last trip and signing off until the next one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>